My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning, this is Pastor Lane Jones from Caucus Baptist Church speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. Have you ever watched television? Maybe you were, I don't know, you just left the thing on after you got done watching a program and one of those infomercials came on. And it's like they're advertising, what is it, sunglasses for $19.99 or, or some special thing for the kitchen. And then, of course, they come on and they say, well, if you order within 30 minutes, we're going to slash the price from $19.99 to $15.99. And if you're one of the first 30 callers, maybe you'll get this extra and they, they'll come back on and they say, well, there's more. And just, I think it's pretty funny when you watch those. Well, actually, the passage we're looking at in the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, sounds sort of like that. It's But God's not kidding here. So I've entitled this passage of Scripture, again, it's Romans 5, 1 to 11, the blessing of being at peace with God. You know, we tend to think that we need to add something to God's conditions for salvation, or we tend to think that God loves me, but it's conditionally. It's based upon my performance after becoming a Christian. The reality is, if you will allow God to love you, and how you do that is by believing what he said about his son, putting your faith in Christ and not in yourself, if you will allow God to love you, it's amazing what he pours out on your life. And so we're going to talk about that this morning from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, that when God pours out his love on you at salvation, for the rest of your days, you should be living with a settled confidence in your relationship with God. Number two, the ability to rejoice in your troubles. Number three, a continual reminder of God's love for you. And there's also three final reasons, kind of like uh, much more reasons why you can rejoice in God's love after your conversion. And so, before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of looking at your word. We know that uh, there will be uh, some who will be listening who have accepted your son as their Lord and Savior, and they have these blessings. May they experience them to the fullest that they can. We know it certainly doesn't mean everybody's healthy and wealthy and all of those things that really are temporary anyway. But you have big-time, e- eternal blessings for your children and we pray that we would grab a hold of them in a, in a renewed fashion as a result of this time together. And we pray, for, Lord, for those who don't know you yet, don't know what it's like to have the love of God on their lives. Lord, may you help them to see what they could have in Christ. And so we pray that you'll bless this time, accomplish what you want in each heart. Bless those who take the time to listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's talk about blessing number one that comes from being at peace with God, and that is the settled confidence in your relationship with the Lord. If you ever watched a young girl when she first gets her engagement ring, and why do we spend so much money on that? One of the things that I believe a young lady enjoys about her engagement ring is it's a physical representation of the value that her fiancé is placing upon her. I think that is one of the things that makes it most meaningful. And the reality is God values and loves his children. But just like that girl, she has to say yes to God's love. She has to be willing to turn from any others who may have interest in her and say, no, I'm going to marry you. 
And so it is with our relationship with God. It's not that God can pour out his love on us in the fullness that he wants to if we're not willing to receive it, if we don't want him. But when we become his children, we find several blessings. And the first one of these is that settled confidence in your relationship with God. And if you're just tuning in to this series, we've been going through the book of Romans for the last several weeks. And back in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we saw the fact that God is justly angry with us for our many, many sins against him and those he created. Now, we, again, like to view God as a gentle, fatherly figure who may not always like what we do, but who loves us too much to ever judge us for our sins. But with that kind of mentality, many in our day cannot imagine why God could possibly not like them. Though in reality, they live like the devil. And I hope this makes sense to you, what I'm about to say. That is, if you side with the devil, you will basically get the same fate as the devil. Satan will ultimately be eternally banished from God's holy presence in a literal place called hell. So the angels who chose to follow the devil will also be sent to that same place called the lake of fire elsewhere. And so will the humans who chose to follow Satan and his evil angels be sent there as well. So, Pastor, you're saying that there is a literal hell for those that don't accept Christ? Yes, and I'm saying that on the authority of Jesus himself. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, and the he, by the way, is Christ himself. He will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Listen to this, prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you want to side with the devil and you want to reject God's loving invitation to make you his child, you can do so. But it is will cost you your eternal soul. So why is this relationship even possible? If we've sinned so greatly against God, and we have, why would a relationship with him even be possible? Well, listen to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you'll notice the relationship with God is made possible because, first of all, you have been declared righteous before God on the basis of simply believing him, believing what he said about himself, believing what he said about his son, believing what he said about you. What happens at that point is the scripture says we have been declared righteous. That word, having been justified by faith, the word justified doesn't just mean that you had a hanged jury. You know what I'm saying? Where, well, we couldn't convict the guy, we didn't have enough evidence, because God certainly knows all about our lives. But this idea of being declared righteous means that God says you're no longer a sinner. doesn't mean we still don't fail while we're on earth. But for our eternal state, we are going to be perfect. Now, how can we as sinners ever be declared righteous? Because there's, uh, there's an obvious problem here, and that is God sees all of your sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't gotten a lot of tickets over my lifetime of driving, and I've driven a lot. And I do try to observe the speed limit. I really do. And so when I'm making a trip on a highway, I will set my cruise right on that speed limit, and I don't vary it unless you, you know, you're going around somebody and you're holding somebody up. I mean, I really try to obey the law. But I will say this. There have been many, many times in my many years of driving that I have been going over the speed limit but there was no one there to catch me. Maybe it was an inadvertent thing, may have been just foolishness on my part, but there was no one there to catch me. But the problem is God sees everything you and I do, everything you do, everything you say, everything you think. 
And if you recall, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that in his kingdom, hatred or unnecessary anger would be dealt with as severely as murder was in his generation. Now, murder was the death penalty in Christ's generation. And so how do you stack up with that standard? You say, I've, yeah, I've had people that I've been angry with unjustly. I've had people that I've even maybe had hatred for in my heart for a time. But it's only one person. It's only this person. Well, that's sort of like the, the murderer in our day saying, well, I only killed one person. The reality is it doesn't work that way. If, if God sees everything, then how could he ever declare any one of us to be justified or righteous? How could he call us a righteous person? Well, the solution is not that you're better than the next guy. Because the reality is, none of us fit that holy standard. The solution is that Jesus suffered the full penalty that God would have afflicted upon you for your sins, and he did that in your place. So 1 John 1, 7, toward the end of the verse, says this, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Since your sin debt has been fully paid by Christ on the cross— there remains no more unpaid sin debt on your account. So like a criminal who has fully served his sentence, you're free to walk from your prison of sin and guilt to live a life of righteousness and honor as a true child of God. Now, how did you ever receive that great gift? Because he says, we have been justified. Well, the next statement tells us how. It says, by faith. It means that you simply believed, and I mentioned this just a moment ago, you believed what God said about himself. What did God say about himself? Well, the very first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you get to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So here's what what God is saying about himself. I'm your righteous creator. I'm the holy God, the creator of man and this universe. Do you believe that, of what God has said about himself? Then let's also go to a second area. Do you believe what God has said about you? Also about me, by the way. And that is you and I both are lost sinners in rebellion against God. We cannot save ourselves. Now, again, that was Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about those many, many sins that we commit against God and the fact that God is justly angry with us for those sins. So I have to believe what God said about himself. He's my creator. He is righteous and holy. I have to believe what God said about me, and that is I'm a lost sinner in rebellion against him. I do not deserve salvation. I do not deserve eternal life. I deserve God's judgment and condemnation. And that's where I'm headed without what comes next, and that is believing what God said about his son. God said that Jesus Christ was both God and man at the same time. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you from the Old Testament. These are prophecies written 700 years before he ever got here. And listen to what Isaiah the prophet, what really probably the most famous of the writing prophets in the Old Testament, what he wrote. This is poetic, so you're going to see a kind of a, a poetic sound to this. It says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, just stop there for a second and think about what the prophet said. He said there's going to be a child who is born. He calls him a son who is given, and I would submit to you that's God's son who is given to us. 
But then he says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So we have a statement that Jesus, this promised Messiah, whoever it's going to be, would be both God and man. He's got to be man to be born, but he's got he's called here the Mighty God. Goes on, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we're told way back 700 years before Christ that someone was coming who would eventually reign on David's throne. That hasn't happened yet, by the way, but it will happen. But he is going to be God and man at the same time. He's going to be man because he's going to be born, but he's going to be called the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, there's another thing that God said about his son. Not only is he both God and man, but he was going to be born of a virgin. He said, well, where was that in the Old Testament? Well, back in Isaiah chapter 7, the same author was in the king's court. And this was not a godly man. His name was Ahaz. And here is what Isaiah said to the court at large. King really wasn't listening very well. He said this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel is a name that we even have kicked around in our generation today. By the way, Jesus is a fairly common name. In the Old Testament, you'd read it as the word Joshua, the name Joshua. So it's not like Jesus was all that unusual of a name. But this name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. And so we were, we were told before Christ ever got here that he would be both God and man at the same time, that he would be born of a virgin. We're also told when we look in the Gospels that Jesus lived a sinless life. And even later than that, the Apostle Paul would write, that God made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us or to become sin for us, the idea of him taking on us, on himself, our sins, who knew no sin, that he that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Christ was lived a sinless life, and then he died a substitutionary death. That is, he's not dying for his sins, he was dying for mine and for yours. And then we're told that Christ bodily rose from the grave. By the way, this was not something, again, that we just made up in the Christian era. Back in Psalm 16, this was a psalm written by David, and he wrote this as he comes to the end of the psalm. He says in verse 9 down to verse 11, Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now, Sheol is an Old Testament word, for like the realm of the dead. Sometimes you can render it grave, sometimes hell, but I believe what he's talking about here is the realm of the dead. You're not going to leave my soul in the grave or in the realm of the dead. Now he goes on, he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, what he's predicting is that his body is not going to be dead and gone in the grave, Okay. But there's this Holy One coming, and his body will not decay in the grave. It'll not rot and go away. Now, David's body is still in his tomb. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't think anybody would doubt that. So who is this Holy One? 
that would not be allowed to see corruption. Isn't that interesting? I would submit to you that is a prediction that the Messiah, God's son, would not rot in the grave, that he would die, but his body would not rot in the grave, that he would be resurrected. And there's more to it. He says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So whoever this person would be, would die, would rise from the dead, and would be ascend to God the Father's right hand. I would submit to you again, that is Jesus Christ. So do you believe what God has said about himself? That he is your creator, your righteous judge. Do you believe what God has said about you? And that is you're a sinner, lost in rebellion against him, without any hope of saving yourself. And do you believe what God said about his son? That he would be God and man at the same time. That he would be born of a virgin, that he would live a sinless life, that he would die on the cross or substitutionary death, but it would be on the cross for your sins, and then he would rise bodily from the grave. That is what faith is all about, believing what God said about himself, believing what God said about you, believing what God said about his son. And when you truly believe those things, then actions naturally result from them. And one of the things that happens when we put our faith in God, notice I'll read it again, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are now declared righteous because of that faith. We have made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only have we been declared righteous before God and simply because we believe what God said, but we are now at peace with God through Jesus' sacrifice in your place. Notice it's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not through doing all kinds of good works, not through joining some organization or giving a lot of money. The reality is we're at peace with God because Jesus paid for my sin debt, and when I embrace him as my Lord and Savior, God is no longer my angry judge. God becomes my heavenly Father. I'm now at peace with God. Do you have that peace? knowing that you have that relationship with God. And again, I hate to sound like those guys on TV, but I'll just say this. There are further results from your new relationship with God that show up in verse 2. It says this, Through whom, speaking of Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's a couple blessings that he mentions here. The first one is this access the idea of being able to go somewhere that maybe everybody else can't go. Some of you may have had that experience. Maybe you went to a, a, a ball game and you had some kind of a special friend or special ticket and you were able to have access to a place that most people can't go. Well, this isn't an access to a you know a place where you can eat food and watch the ball game. We're talking about access to God. And so now you can talk about with the Lord about anything and everything. Things like your joys, your fears, your relationships, your thoughts or feelings, specific requests you may have. You need wisdom or or direction. And you can talk anytime to God and anywhere. You know, it's interesting. The other day, and I'm not a big one on feelings, I'm really not, but um, I was headed into Wilkes-Barre, and I was thinking about going to this hospital, and I just realized that uh, this is 
it was unusual. I really felt the Lord speaking to my heart, just saying, this is wrong. You, you shouldn't be going all the way down there. And so I I thought, Lord, okay, I, I, I really feel strongly that I should not go, that it would not be the right timing. And so, I was again, I was going to visit a guy in the hospital, but I just really felt the Lord saying, that's not what I want you to do right now. And so, I, those of you that might know our area, I was at a Four Corners up by the Torrey um, uh, Grange there. And so I decided I would turn left instead of right. Right would have taken me down toward Homesdale. I turned left and headed back to my house. And as I'm making my way down what would be called Hartman Road, I'm saying to God, well, I, I, I really had peace. Now, I'm doing the right thing. I, I do believe I'm, I shouldn't go to Wilkesbury. But I asked the Lord, well, why did you really put that on my heart now? Was I not sensitive earlier? You know, why did I have those strong feelings after I've already got the car? I've been down the road five minutes. I've I got many things to do. I mean, I'm wasting several minutes in my mind having gone out and gone this far. But it was interesting. As I'm going down the road a little farther and I'm, I'm getting closer to my house, I see a lady outside, a lady that I've wanted to see for weeks. And all of a sudden, it's like the Lord is saying, that's why I let you come out of the house and really spoke to you strongly because I want you to talk to her. And it was, it was great. I, I pulled into her driveway. We had quite a long conversation, and I was able to reconnect with her. You know, God, we're able to talk to him on that kind of level. And again, I'm not saying that happens all the time. It doesn't happen with me all the time. But we can. We can share specifics. We can ask God for wisdom and direction, and we can talk to him at any point. And so we have this access to God. We also, when we have accepted Christ by faith and been declared righteous, we have a settled confidence in enjoying God's glory in heaven. You really should be able, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, to be able to say, even if I don't live to the morning, hey, I know where I'm going to be after that. If God calls me home tonight, I am going home. I'm going to heaven. And I pray that you have that settled confidence. And that's what God wants you to have. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So God wants you to have eternal life, and he wants you to know you've got it. It's not just imagining something. There's a relationship that you have with God, and when you know you've got it, then you can have this settled peace that, hey, I know where I'm going. So when God pours out his love on you at salvation for the rest of your days, you should be able to rest in this steady, firm relationship with your God. There's a second blessing. And that is you should be able to enjoy the rest of your days with this ability to rejoice in your troubles, to rejoice in your troubles. Now, I'm not saying being like masochistic. You know what a masochist is, right? The person that likes to inflict punishment upon themselves. I don't know if you heard about it, but a masochist uh, got married to a sadist. Now, a sadist is a person that loves to inflict punishment on someone else. So you got this person, will make him the husband. He likes to inflict punishment or pain on himself, and he marries a, a, a sadistic girl who loves to inflict punishment on someone else. And and so um, one day he's depressed about something, and he just says to his wife, well, just hit me, hit me. And in her sadistic uh, manner, she says no. 
Um, we, you know, um, I don't know, it's kind of a sick joke, but the idea is that we as Christians, it's not like we are jumping up and down that something bad happened to us, but we can sincerely have confidence and faith in God and trust him and praise him even during difficult circumstances. Listen to what he says. He says, and not only that, again, this is another thing we're adding on to the blessings of salvation. Not only that you can have this relationship with God that is steady, that is that you can bank on, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now, again, the word tribulations there has the idea of literally pressure, pressing things together, Figuratively, in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's really discussing suffering that is often is brought on by outward circumstances, can refer to like affliction, oppression, trouble. So think about this. He's saying we can glory. That word glory means to exalt. You can actually be rejoicing. You say, well, how can I be rejoicing when things go badly? Well, there's a reason. Actually, several but if you want to kind of encapsulate it, it's simply this. If you are saved by the blood of Christ through putting your faith in him, then you have made peace with God, and this means you can know for certain that you're going to actually grow through that suffering as you walk with God. Now, again, if you want to get mad at God and, and, and in your mind kick God in the shins, well, that's a little different. But if you're resting in the fact that, you know what, God loves me, and so this trial, this problem that I'm going through, doesn't hinder that at all. doesn't mean that God has stopped loving me. doesn't mean that, that um, uh, God is, is just, you know, turned his back on me. Don't think that. If you're genuinely born again and you understand your scriptures, what you realize is actually God takes the pressures and the problems and the afflictions of life and he uses them to grow his children. You say, well, what, what does that look like? Let's keep reading. He says, not only that we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, perseverance is the idea of sticking with the Lord when it's tough. The idea of hanging on to your faith when all the people around you are telling you to drop it. The idea of perseverance means going through. Think of it as a, a person running a marathon and they get maybe to mile 15, and they're feeling like, I can't do the other 11. I can't do it. And so their mind may be battling this, but the, the person who finishes is the person who perseveres. And maybe they're going to have to run it slower. Maybe they form a limp or whatever. But the pr people that persevere, they keep going, and they don't quit, and they don't give up. And when someone knows the Lord, you just can't give up. You just got to keep going. You got to keep trusting even though we may be beaten around and, and confused and all the rest. So tribulation will produce perseverance, but produ perseverance produces something else. Verse 4 says, in perseverance, character. Now, that word character is an interesting word. It's rendered in the New American Standard Bible, proven character. So the idea is when you go through difficulties and you hang on to your faith in the Lord, What's resulting from that is you're gaining valuable experience. You're showing proven character. It's like sharpening um, a, a, a knife where it becomes more useful, sharper. It's the idea of a, 
of a military person. Let me give you an example from the Bible. David is one of the greatest, I think, the greatest military leader in the Scriptures, maybe of all time. And he's a great example. Early in his life, he's a shepherd boy. And again, I don't have this kind of love for an animal, but David, as a shepherd, really took seriously his duty to care for his sheep. And different times during those years as a youth, Lions or bears would come out. I'm sure, I don't think at the same time, but they would, different times they would come out and he would rescue those sheep from that big animal. And there were times that David described that the animal would turn on him and he would actually kill that lion or the bear. He proved his character because of the difficulties. Now, again, I probably would have walked away from Bleedy and said, well, there's one less. But David, this really a man that God is preparing for a military career, is is not that kind of kid. He's he's willing to risk his life, and going through those experiences with the lions and the bears were extremely significant for him later in life. And again, he's still a young man, not even able, not even twenty years old. I, I, I'm confident when he gets there's a, a King Saul is looking for someone who's a musician. And guess what? David was a musician as well. And so there's a guy that knew David. He knew King Saul wanted a musician. And he said, I know a guy. And he says, and again, he's just a youth. He says, he is a man of war and he's a great musician. Saul ends up picking him. And David comes and plays in his court. And by the way, David is greatly loved by Saul and becomes Saul's armor bearer, which means he's going to get training in, in military tactics. Now, it's later on that the, the arch enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines, are attacking Israel. David's too young to fight. He's sent back home. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. But it was when his dad sent David now to check on his brothers that David encounters the great Philistine giant Goliath and his challenge to take on anyone in mortal combat. Now, the last person in the world you would think of sending out to fight Goliath is a kid who's not even old enough to be in the army. And so how in the world did David talk King Saul into letting him go out there? Have you ever thought about that? Well, it's it's found right there in, in 1 Samuel 17 when David expresses, and no one else was willing to fight Goliath. When David expresses, I'm willing to go fight him, Saul has him called in, and he looks at the, here's this kid. And it's like, you know, why should, you can't do it. And David tells Saul, when I was back with the sheep, I took on lions, I took on bears, and if they came against me, I killed them. And here's what he said. He said, the God that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear will deliver me from that Philistine giant. And Saul, that changed the king's mind, he said, go ahead. Why? Because David had proven character. And you know, you don't have proven character without going through difficulties, without going through problems, without conquering things that other people don't think can be done. Now, proven character isn't the end of it. So we see already two blessings that come out of pressures and bad and difficult situations. The first one was perseverance, sticking with it when you want to, when other people are telling you to drop it and lose your faith. Number two 
we find perseverance produces that proven character as you stick with it, as David chases down those wild animals and now gets experience at what it's like to conquer those situations, that leads then to another blessing. Proven character produces hope. Now, when we're talking hope, and I've mentioned this before on this broadcast, it's not like a flip of the coin. I hope it's heads, okay? The hope in the Bible term is a confident expectation. It's something that you believe is going to happen because you've seen something similar happen before. That's exactly why David could say, look, I'm not afraid to fight this guy. If God could give me victory over a lion and a bear, he could give me victory over that Philistine guy. That's the kind of confidence that comes when you have been through trouble and you haven't run away. And so David isn't afraid to go against Goliath. Matter of fact, when the battle comes, he's running toward him. Now, all right, we can sometimes have all kinds of confidence, and many many of you who have been through life experiences know this, that confidence doesn't always work out. But listen to what God says about the hope he's giving, that confident expectation that he's given. He says, now hope does not disappoint. Now think about that. And he's saying, when you have confidence in God, God doesn't disappoint that. So why would that be so? Listen to it. He goes on. He says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Thus, trials are God's way of helping us to grow in perseverance, which leads to proven character, which leads to confidence in God, and this confidence will not be disappointed as the Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. That doesn't mean, Christian, you get everything you want. But I will tell you, you can learn and learn by experience that God answers prayer, that God is good, and if God doesn't give you what you want, it's because he's got a better plan than you've got. Doesn't mean it's the way you would have done it. But you can come to that kind of confidence in God. So you should be growing in your understanding and appreciation for God's love for you, which then causes you to grow spiritually and to love the Lord even more. And this, by the way, is the greatest blessing we could have to love God more. Remember they came to Jesus, Matthew 22, you'd read about it in verses 35 down to verse 38, and they asked him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the first and the great commandment. And so you know what, folks? If trials cause us to love God more than May God bring them in his, in his own goodness and timing. Well, there's a third blessing that happens. Not only when God pours out his love on you at salvation, for the rest of your days, you should live with a settled confidence in your relationship with God. And then secondly, in the, we should live in the ability to rejoice in your troubles, knowing that God's got good purposes behind them and that God's working good in your life. And then number three, you should be able to live the rest of your life with a continual reminder of God's love for you. And that reminder is very simple. It is the cross. Listen to verses six through eight. It says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want you to see, when you think about the cross, because some people evaluate what they think is God's love by how things are going. 
So if I got a new girlfriend and she really makes me happy, I think, well, God must really love me. But then if my girlfriend and I break up six months later, I think, well, God must really hate me. You don't evaluate God's love like that when you are a Christian and you really understand what's going on. Because what it's showing us here, listen to it again. I'm reading specifically from verse 8. God demonstrates, present tense, he demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the only place you need to look to wonder if God loves you. Now, again, the big question is, do you love God enough to let him into your life? Are you willing to open your heart to him? You know, you can't have a marriage if the girl says no, and you can't have a relationship with God if you say no. You've got to be willing to humble yourself to realize, hey, God, I have sinned against you multiple, just, I can't even count the times. I deserve your wrath like everybody else does. I want to repent of my sin. I want a relationship with you. But if you don't want it, because God certainly got the invitation open to you. It's always been there. So I want you to see a few things here. First of all, see yourself. And that is when we were yet without strength. We we, we didn't have that idea of without strength is you don't have enough ability. You're condemned by God's righteousness. You're guilty of a lifetime of crimes against the King of Kings. I'll give you some examples. Taking his holy name in vain. Lying. Cheating. Evil influences on people around you including your own family members, bitter words, accusations maybe that are false, actions against others whom God created that are violent or mean. And your sentence as an enemy of God is eternal banishment from his kingdom, from his presence, from your true master, and and you're going to end up with the person that you served, and that is Satan in hell. So you've got to see yourself where you're at. But then you need to see God's plan. He says... When we were still without strength, we were in a hopeless situation. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What was God's plan? In the the New International Version, it says, at just the right time. In the Christian Standard Bible, it says, at the appointed moment. And the idea is that Jesus died for the ungodly. Uh, The the lamb in the Scripture, starting from Genesis chapter 4, is part of a long-standing picture of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Started way back, Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, with a man by the name of Abel, who was Adam and Eve's second son. It says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, probably a sheep, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 in the New Testament tells us, that Abel offered a more acceptable offering to God than his brother Cain did. Abel is offering uh, an animal from the flock. It was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Well, you skip down just a few more chapters in Genesis to chapter 22, and you find Abraham making a sacrifice. And Isaac, his son, they're, they're walking up toward the mountain of Moriah, and Isaac asks an interesting question probably thinks maybe his dad's starting to lose it a little bit. He says, you know, Dad, we got the fire, we've got the wood. He said, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham made a prophetic statement, really. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went on to this place that God had identified somewhere in the mountains of Moriah. You may recall that God did not provide a lamb on that day. 
even though God, Abraham had made that prediction. Instead, he showed Abraham a ram, an older animal, still a sheep and an older animal, to offer instead of his son. But then the Lord gave a special name to that spot. He called it, and I'll read out of Genesis 22 and verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Isn't that interesting? So there's a futuristic tense here. This idea is that in the mount of the Lord, it seems like something's going to be provided in the future. So I think you should be asking yourself, well, what will be provided in this mount of the Lord? And I think it's reasonable to conclude that the missing lamb that Isaac was asking about would be provided on that very mountain. Well, when you keep on going through the Old Testament, you find evening and morning sacrifices. Back in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 39, it mentions that every evening from, and, and by the way, there's some debate as to what time that would be. So often we think about, you know, after dark, it actually is the idea between the evenings. So um, the, the Talmudists, they believe it was kind of roughly between 3 to 5 p.m. in the um, in the uh, um, Mishnah, they're mentioning about 2.30 p.m. Uh, both times would very possibly fit with the last moments of Jesus' life. You remember how he said in due time or at the perfect time Christ died for the ungodly? When is he dying? He's dying during Passover week. Now, uh, let me, and by the way, on the day of the Passover, back up before that, when Jesus is introduced to the world, John the Baptist, here's his announcement. I don't think John understood everything that he was saying, but God told him to say this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the sin of the world. Now think about that. So we've had these lambs being sacrificed for literally thousands of years. And now the prophet who's to introduce Jesus, who honestly, John thinks he's going to reign like a king, but he announces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that place of Abraham's sacrifice, where was it? Well, we know it's on the mountains of Moriah. We know that the city of Jerusalem sits on the mountains of, of, of Moriah, which is very interesting. So in the Islamic view, the, it's the place where Ishmael was sacrificed. They, they change it from Isaac. And that's where the Dome of the Rock sits today. They think that was the spot of Abraham's sacrifice. In the, many Jews and Christians will believe it's the place that the temple would later be built, which, by the way, is on that same temple mount. But there's another possibility. Again, we only know the general locations on one of the mountains which I will tell you of is what God said. But the we do know the Dome of the Rock is on one of the mountains of Moriah. We also know that Solomon's temple does sit on one of the mountains of Moriah. But did you also know that Jesus was crucified on one of the mountains of Moriah? And could it be, as John the Baptist had said, whether he understood it or not, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You say, was Jesus really a sacrifice? Well, that was actually what was predicted. Remember that prophet Isaiah that prophesied that Jesus would be both man and God at the same time? Listen to a, a chapter 53, verses 4 to 6 of his book. He says, Surely he, and that he there, if you is the servant of the Lord in the context, you got to go back to chapter 53, verse 13 to know it, but it's it's talking about it's talking about this Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And by the way, he was smitten by God. You say, why do you say that? 
Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Our transgressions is our rebellious deeds. He was bruised for our iniquities. Iniquities is when we're twisting something good into evil. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, which is the definition of sin. It's living life my way instead of God's way. And then it says, and the Lord, that would be God the Father, has laid on him, that's the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. That's right out of the prophet Isaiah's mouth, right out of his pen. You see, Jesus was the sacrifice. And I want you to see then yourself as the the person who was without strength, the ability to save yourself. See God's son coming to die in your place. See him in verse 7, dying in your stead. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But then see this demonstration. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is an ever-present seal of God's love for you, the crucifixion of his son. The question has never been, can God find it in his heart to love me? The question has always been, will you turn from your sin, loving your sin, to embrace the God who created you and loves you and sent his son to die in your place? We've seen three blessings from being at peace with God. The first one is that settled confidence in your relationship with God. The second one, the ability to rejoice in your troubles. Number three, this continual reminder of God's love for you when you think about the cross. And let me give you three final reasons to rejoice in God. They're all in verses 9 to 11. And so let me read, starting with verse 9, much more than, here's another blessing, there's more. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's blessing number one. This idea, again, you're declared righteous through Christ's blood. Imagine that you were born into a criminal's home and your father taught you to steal almost from the time that you could walk. And as you got older, you found that you liked crime. You soon put together your own gang, began to rob, brutalize, and even kill people for their money or possessions. And sometimes you even assaulted people just for the fun of it. Eventually, you were caught and brought to trial. You were convicted of multiple crimes, including premeditated murder. You were justly sentenced to die. This is where you stand as a condemned sinner before your holy God. And I, again, I'm not saying you're a murderer. I'm just saying this. You've sinned like I have multiple times against our Creator. And it's not, it's daily, and, and I, we don't even realize how many times we, we fail the Lord. So where, where do we stand? We stand sentenced to death. We're sentenced to eternal hell after that. However, Jesus Christ has come to the earth in God's perfect time, has died in your place, and God the Father has placed your sins on his Son. Now, in my illustration, you've come down to um, bow at Jesus' feet, and you have repented of your sins. I hope you've done that. You've turned your life over to Christ, asked him to forgive you. Now, when you rise from your knees, here's what you hear. God has now declared and it's almost hard to believe this, he's declared you not just forgiven, he declares you to be his son, his righteous son, because your death penalty, your sin, has been completely wiped away. God has declared you 
to be his righteous son. This is what it means to be justified. But again, there's still more. I'm reading on. He says, for if when we were enemies, we were, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That means you have been delivered from hell. I think if we could only see the, the horrors of that place, we would just be rejoicing that God would save us from it. He goes on, verse 10, for when, if, when we were enemies, and that's where we were, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we now have been declared righteous. We've been saved from God's wrath and hell. And now when we, because we've made peace with God, God has reconciled you to himself. Reconciled means you are brought back together. You are brought with your creator into a, into a loving relationship. Verse 11, not only that, there's another add-on. But we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That means you can now draw near in joy to God Almighty, who has chosen to pay for all your sins, in order not that you might just merely be saved, but that you might become his son. Can you imagine that? So we see these four major blessings that come from having peace with God. Number one is a settled confidence in your relationship with God. Number two, the ability to rejoice in your troubles, knowing God's up to good in your life because he loves you and you're his child. Number three, continual reminder of God's love for you. You don't have to wonder, does he still love me when your girlfriend breaks up with you? Look at the cross. That's the ongoing demonstration of how much God loves and values you when you've embraced it. Number four, you have the continual reasons, three more reasons, to rejoice in God. You have been declared righteous, you are delivered from his wrath and hell, and you are now reconciled to God. You can talk with God as your loving Heavenly Father. And so how do you live with this? Well, let me give you three things. First of all, live with joy. Live with joy. Realize, I have been forgiven. You can't make up for your sins, my beloved. You just can't. You can't. You know what you can do? You can be thankful, and we can do that. Live with joy. Number two, live with confidence. Again, you don't have to question God's love because the coffee maker broke. You don't have to question God's love because you had an automobile accident. Does God ever discipline his own? Yes, there's times when he disciplines us, but it's always because he loves us. Never do we go out of that love relationship with God when we come into a relationship with him as his child. So live with joy, live with confidence, and number three, if you have not given your heart to Christ, run to him now. Run to him now. Because you know the greatest peace and joy you can ever experience in life is to live in the reality, I have made peace with God. Have you done that? The story is told about a man long ago who was seeking a perfect picture of peace and not finding one that satisfied him. He announced a contest to produce a masterpiece of what, what peace would be like. And so the challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere, and paintings arrived from a long distance away many times. And finally, the great day of the revelation arrived. The judges uncovered one peaceful scene after another while the viewers clapped and cheered. The tensions grew as only two pictures remained unveiled. And so the judge pulled the cover from the first of the two, and a hush fell over the crowd. This painting of a mere smooth lake reflecting lacy green birches under 
the soft blush of the evening sky. Along the grassy shore, there's a flock of sheep grazing undisturbed. And many people thought, wow, that may be the best one we've seen. Then the man uncovered the last painting, which was his favorite and actually won the prize. And the crowd kind of gasped in surprise at this one. And they're thinking, how could this be a scene of peace? There was a tumultuous waterfall that's cascading down a rocky precipice. The crowd could almost feel its cold penetrating spray. There's a stormy gray clouds that threaten to explode with lightning, wind, and rain. And in the midst of this, the thundering noises and bitter chill that this painting is expressing, there's a spindly little tree that's clinging to the rocks at the edge of the falls. When you look closely at that tree, one of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly seeking to experience the full power of that waterfall. But what you, again, as you still look closer, what you see is a little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch, and content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings, she is seen resting on her eggs with her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, and she is manifesting a peace that transcended all the earthly turmoil around her. You know, when Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When you boil that down, that's the kind of peace that God's talking about. The peace that was in that second greatest painting was a peace that really was resulting from circumstances around you. Honestly, folks, think about it. That piece comes and goes. The painting that won the prize is representing a piece that is independent of your circumstances, that all kinds of turmoil could be going on around you. Folks, that's the kind of peace that God wants to give you. Doesn't mean your circumstances are, are going to change a whole lot. Doesn't mean you're going to have more money or better health. What it does mean is you are resting in the fact that I have been reconciled to God, that God and I are in a solid, eternal relationship, and everything else that swirls around me isn't going to change that at all. May that kind of peace be yours, I pray. Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he frees.